Hello, everyone, and welcome to Conflict in the Comments with Dominic Barter and Rivera Sun. I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach, with Restorative Justice on the Rise, and I'll be handing over the mic in a moment to our wonderful moderator for the day uh, for this 90-minute session, Kit Miller. She is the director of the M.K. Gandhi Institute, and we're just delighted to share this time with you today. The framing question really is, are there ways to nourish authentic dialogue and conflict resolution when things get hot online? Relationships are being created, nourished, and sometimes destroyed in online spaces. Are there ways, again, to nourish that authentic dialogue and instill some conflict res resolution, even in social spheres? How are we working with trolls or friends and relatives acting like trolls and get through heated arguments to meaningful communication? So this uh, topic today is such a poignant one, and I just want to point out that also it's in perfect synchrony with a, a media ad, a major media ad that Nonviolence Now, whom this event is a benefit for, just dropped uh, a major uh, cover ad, um, inside cover ad, in Newsweek in, in the edition that came out today with uh, on the cover is Brian Stevenson. So um, you'll see that that ad is going to be up throughout today's session. Um, one note for you, this is an interactive session. If you have questions or comments and you want to get involved, um, Kit's going to share a couple shared values around um, how that's going to work, but I want to give you practical information as to how to do that. Please press star 2 on your telephone keypad if you'd like to ask a question or make a comment live. Also on the webcast pane, you'll see a Q&A tab. So you can use that in order to submit a question that um, prompts us to read for you. Also, please remember to consider making a donation if you can and are able to Nonviolence Now by going to the webcast page now or, or at replay and recording um, because this will become an evergreen recording webcast. There's a donate button at the upper right-hand corner that you can use for that purpose. So without further ado, I'd love to bring into this virtual living room Kit Miller, who again is the director of the MK Gandhi Institute. Welcome, Kit. Molly, thank you. Thank you so much. What a what a this is such an exciting moment. Oh, and I want to thank everybody who's jumping in live right now or anyone who's just listening to this recording someday in the future. Uh it's it's this whole uh, project has been such an amazing um, process so far, and I want to give you a little bit of an overview because all of you who are joining us in the call today and all of you who listen to this recording in the future are, are now part of this thing, this journey. Uh, about uh, over a year ago, uh, the Ghani Institute for Nonviolence, where I work, it's a little outfit up in Rochester, New York, really dedicated to sharing nonviolence with youth in community-based settings here. We won a, uh, something very surprising. We won a, a national prize um, from the Newman Zone Foundation. We won a quarter million dollars in global digital banner ads. And we decided, 
uh, after that win, which took place right at the end of uh, last year. So we wanted to use the prize to do a marketing campaign for nonviolence itself. Uh, so we set to work, and uh, a group of extraordinary people showed up to help us. Uh, one of them, Rivera's son, who you're going to hear from in just a minute, um, Maya Bankson from Berkeley, California, Susan Rockrise, a board member at Meta Center for Nonviolence, and some of my colleagues here at the Gandhi Institute, uh, a wonderful website designer, Justin from Mary down in Maryland. So uh, a geographically diverse group of people, age diverse group of people, nationality diverse, set to work. And the idea was to create this campaign that was a global campaign. We didn't want it to be a U.S.-centered campaign. It happened to be that we were all sitting in the U.S., but we wanted it to be a campaign that would speak to people around the world, that would help people who had never considered nonviolence or who even thought of violence as inevitable and pleasurable uh, to, to engage and think about nonviolence. We wanted to interrupt violence, essentially. So we created these beautiful ads. We brought them to the to the media company in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, that's been an extraordinary benefactor uh, for the project called Public Foundation, and presented the ads to them. And they loved the ads so much, and they loved the choice that we had made not to try to use the campaign to enlarge our own institution's image, but instead to kind of give give the prize away on behalf of a principal that they extended the campaign from four weeks to a year. So we went from a quarter million dollar four-week campaign to now a commitment of a 52-week campaign on behalf of nonviolence itself. And then things got even more wonderful. The United Nations reached out and we were able to launch the campaign on Gandhi's birthday on October 2nd. And then we heard another wonderful thing, uh, which was that we had an opportunity for a pro bono free ad in Newsweek magazine, and we literally picked that up yesterday, and you'll be seeing those images today. And then we began to get feedback as the ads were being placed. We purchased some ads in faces and spaces on social media where nonviolent or where violence is particularly concentrated, some spaces where particularly violent video games are being played, for instance. We, we, we had ads there. And we started getting these wonderfully grumpy responses, um, sometimes scathing responses to the ads, which was great. We didn't want to just be talking to people who thought like we did. And so the need for this, this phone call actually emerged from our own steering committee. Uh, we thought, well, how do we respond to this in the most skillful way that we possibly can? So that notion of creating a conversation where other people could join us and benefit from like what we were thinking about and hopefully also contribute and all of us together could make something happen. That was part of the idea behind the call. The guidelines for today's call are that we want to encourage people to engage with us so that you'll be able to join us and um, take turns um, offering your questions or thoughts. My request is that you be as lean of expression as possible. So please use you know, think through what you want to say, if possible, before you get on the call, um, and make so that we use the air as um, widely as we can today. And um, 
if if uh, someone speaks at length, I'm probably going to interrupt. So just letting you know that in advance. Last thing I want to say before I turn it over to Revere to offer her opening thoughts is that we're, I'm dedicating the merit of this call today myself to Molly's son, Molly, who are a wonderful host today, uh, her son, David. I love to dedicate the merit of diff different efforts on behalf of specific human beings. It helps to make the reason that I do things even more clear to me. So today I have this, this her young son in my mind. Let all the good that comes out of our time together go to benefit him and all the children. So that's kind of how I wanted to get us started today. Revere, what would you like to say as a way to get started today? Mm, thank you, Kit. Thanks for that wonderful opening. And Molly, thank you for hosting this call. I want to just invite us all to take a deep breath. Because conflict uh, is one of the most exciting, interesting, and terrifying things that human beings do. And sometimes we do it uh, in skillful ways that lead to resolutions that are very thrilling all around, and sometimes we do it in destructive ways that lead, in the worst case scenarios, to violence, war, uh, and death. And most often we do it in some kind of manner somewhere in between there. And that's a pretty wide territory of exploration. And I use the word exploration intentionally because mm, Although I have quite a background in strategy for nonviolent movements and have been dealing with conflict for quite some time, I mean, we've all been dealing with conflict for most of our lives, but dealing with it in a particular way for a number of years now with nonviolent struggle, the reality is that we're always engaging in what Gandhi called an experiment with truth or an experiment in truth. And that when we speak about conflict, we're the best way I've found is to come from experience rather than expertise. Uh, I can't claim to be an expert and tell you the cookie cutter mold for handling all your trolls perfectly, but I can share some experiences that I've had and things that have worked and not worked because we can learn from what doesn't work as much as we learn from what, what seems to be going in a direction that we want. And so, um, one of the things that I do a lot of is social media work. I've done it professionally for groups and organizations, and I've done it for myself for a number of years. And the great thing about social media is that it's social. It really is an opportunity to engage with others. And much as we'd like to just limit our friend circles to our fans and family and cheering squad, the reality is that even our friends and family often disagree with us. Uh, we just crossed the, the turning point where social media has become uh, larger than mainstream news outlets in terms of user and participation. So that means that most of us are getting what we consider our facts or our news via a social media source. And as many of us have encountered, uh, that can be contentious. It can have multiple strands of truth. It can put us in direct conflict with people who don't agree with us. So today, we'd like to share some strategies for approaching that. And I'm not on my own on this call, including all of you, and I hope you take notes and have questions and comments to bring up a little later on. But we're hoping that Dominic Barter can also join us. And uh, Dominic is quite a remarkable human being, first of all, and with a pretty incredible experience load under his belt uh, of life experiences. So I'm just going to 
turn the mic and see if he's here to join us yet. Hi. I'm here. Hey. Hi. <laughs> how, how Dominic, long are there any arrive? Uh I just I just got in a couple of minutes ago enough enough to um to hear uh what was just said. Wonderful. Wonderful. What would you like to say to start us off today as you sort of contemplate the notion of conflict in the comments and, and online conversations and conflict? Um, first of all, how happy I am that conversations like this are beginning to happen. Um, I think it's so important. I I, I tend to, to to observe that any relationship, even after just uh, a few hours of of Existing and, and people interrelating, that relationship will develop uh, a justice system, uh, a, a formal, even if unspoken, organized agreement for how we respond to conflict. And I find that if we don't consciously choose the one that we'd like, then we get the one that our culture provides us with. And I think that that's true online too, where so many of us are coming together in these huge uh, conglomerations of relationships, um, often involving people we've never physically met yet. I think everybody these days um, has these experiences where they'll they'll go to a certain place and they'll meet someone who they've never physically seen before and might not even recognize, but they've actually been in a relationship with for quite some time in different groups online uh, or even speaking individually, but never directly physically being in the same space at the same time. So there are new agreements or, and new uh, absences of clarity about these agreements in our lives because of the way that we're interacting online. And that means that in the, the social media spaces, we often experience conflict as being particularly tricky. It's not just tricky because our culture has trained us to be fearful of it, but it's also tricky because we haven't consciously worked out how to language, how to formalize, how to agree the way in which we're going to relate to each other when disagreements arise, as they inevitably will. Mm. So one of the things that I like to remember is that um, social media spaces have, have provided an incredible ability for us to increase our ability to express ourselves. And that has had so many benefits for so many people, and, and particularly for marginalized groups. That's given uh, a stronger voice and the ability to broadcast that voice to people who have struggled historically forever to be heard, but it hasn't increased our ability to listen. So we've, um, our, our expression muscles have been uh, very much um, developed recently, and our listening muscles not necessarily. Hmm. And the other thing I like to remember is that the, uh, m most of the platforms that we're using to express ourselves online are designed to promote debate but they're not necessarily designed to promote dialogue. And it's a function of systems to present themselves as being invisible, of, of not existing. And I think that's definitely true. When I go into an online platform, I often forget that I am in a platform. I just focus on, on, on the other person and on myself and, and what it is that we're saying and doing together. Whereas actually these platforms uh, are I, at the moment not primarily designed to promote understanding and conversation, but rather to promote um, the expression of ideas, and often those ideas clash. So I like to remember that um, 
part of our experience of conflict is to do with the space that we're in, and part of it is to do with um, how we're being encouraged to express ourselves. So creating spaces for listening and individually putting effort into putting conscience, putting intentionality into into listening um, can make a big difference to our experience of being online. Dominic, I'm thinking about uh, one of the books I've been reading on systems and um, social justice work, and uh, and I'm wondering from they were thinking about something that David Peter Stroh says in his book Systems Thinking for Social Change. He talked about how critical it is for us to be able to engage in systems change um, by having a, a skill of engaging in conflict without contempt, um, to be able to argue in good spirits, basically. And as you said, so many of the conversations that are taking place where people are trying to create change are spaces where um, often they are feeling debate-oriented rather than dialogue-oriented. So the conflict often does include contempt. And I'm curious to to hear from either of you about um, spaces online where you have experienced more of a quality of dialogue and what what went into creating those spaces where a different feeling was there. Rivera, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you can bring a lot into the space for better and for worse. Uh, if you go looking for a fight, just as if you're walking down the street at you know midnight uh, outside your favorite bar looking for a fight, you're probably going to find one. You're going to find an opportunity. Uh, if you have your defenses up and your shields up and you're scared of everyone and you just want to throw a punch in their face, whether that's literally in the street or it's uh, metaphorically online, you're probably going to find that experience is there to be had. But if you want something different, you need to come in with something different. And uh, one of the things that I love most about social media is that it's virtual, right? You're you're probably not going to get a literal punch through the screen. Um, and so it gives you an opportunity to train your skills that you will use over and over again in all sorts of other places in your life. Uh, and, you know, two things that you brought up right then is and Dominic brought up is the importance of listening that many of our cultures, not all of them, but many of them have a real deficit in listening skills. And what I've found and seen online over and over again is people, including myself at times, freaking out over what the other person has commented without actually reading the comment um, or not reading carefully or creating a whole context and story out of a comment that you can't know from the comment that's there. So, one of the things that I've been working on myself to do more of is to read comments at least twice. Uh, this has really been very helpful. It's like listening deeply. Um, and then if I feel something coming up, to take the advantage that a um, virtual space provides of sitting back and reflecting. This person isn't in real time with you. You don't have to shout an argument back at them or even say something respectfully back to them right away. You can think about your response. You can write it twice without posting it. Um, and these are tools. These are tr excellent, excellent tools that we have on social media for training ourselves uh, to see and observe our habits and then to transform them in real time. Um, and the difference between debate and dialogue is huge. It's a huge thing. And we have such an opportunity every time we enter an online space 
to recognize that we don't have to win a debate. Our lives are not ex at stake in this exact moment, but the future of our societies and our humanity may very well be shifted in turn by our ability to have a really great conversation with someone we totally disagree with in that online space. And uh, I, I'm sure we're going to have more chances to talk about that, so I, I want to pass the microphone back and hear what Dominic has to say on this. Yeah, I, I love that, Rivera, particularly the the ability that the online spaces give us to write something, maybe kind of beautifully expressing our outrage at what it is that we've just read someone else say, to sit with the comment that we've just written so that really kind of let it sink in and then and then just just to rewrite it in a different way that increases the chance that other people are going to be hearing it rather than only focusing on um the, the hormones that are rushing through my body with satisfaction because of the way that I've written it. Because like you say, we can, if we're, if we're, if we're looking for a punch up, we can find it almost anywhere. Hmm. So I haven't found Kit that there are kind of these magic spaces where, where the conversations are flowing in, in different ways. And that if you'd only go to this chat room or something or, you know, get into this group, then you'll find that everything flows. But I have found that I can, I can balance the kind of spaces that I, that I move through online. Uh, through my day and by by having uh, smaller groups where there is a, a greater commitment to a particular way of of, of expression and a, and a focus on the humanity behind the messages um, that 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 gives that builds resilience and and enthusiasm for the unknown for the different and for those spaces where uh, conflict might be the and at least initially, the truest, most authentic way for people to be expressing themselves. Hmm. So I'm I'm less concerned about trying to find the spaces that are that are quiet, so as to have a quiet life, and more interested in finding spaces that are that are nurturing and meaningful for me, so that I can more effectively engage in the places where where some of um, the mo the more painful conversations are, are necessarily happening. So. For me, this, this, the search for um, the, the potential for connection that online spaces have isn't an attempt to avoid the more difficult, challenging expressions that other people might have or that I might find within myself. But um, part of learning how to turn up to those spaces more fully nurtured so that um, my presence in them can encourage the most meaningful things to be said and to be heard rather than what we've just experienced here in, in Brazil, because we've just come out of an um, extremely tense presidential election, is, is people kind of turning themselves into meme machines in which they basically just re repeat um, pre-written points of view using pre-written phrases at each other. And, and after a while, you, you start to notice there's no, there's no authorial voice here. There's no... There's no new thinking occurring, but simply people repeating um, in an echo chamber these um, talking points that have always that are, have already been registered somewhere. So I want to have the the resilience to be able to to dig behind them and find out what what is what is the human being who's repeating those phrases actually seeking. Hmm. So I'm hearing a couple of pieces of wisdom from the two of you. One is the wisdom of, of slowing down and getting centered on who do I want to be here. Another related one is that I want to 
I want to be the same person everywhere I go, whether it's how I engage with my child or my neighbor and how I engage with someone whose face I'll, I'll possibly never see online. So there's like an ethics that's consistent acro across different spaces. One one of the things that I'm listening in, into as is, is I'm hearing you both is I'm reflecting on um, a lot of the work that I do is not on social media. It's community-based, and it's often in, in spaces in the community where there's a lot of divergence of opinion. And I'm with you, Dom, that those are the spaces where the richest things are happening. So it's not around dodging difficulty. It's how do we engage with it skillfully. And one thing that I have found, and it's kind of reminded me of it when I listened to the two of you, was that actually most people, when they're when they're heated and they're expressing something in the, in the uh, strongest possible language or volume, if you're live with them, relates to that they're actually, I have found, hungrier for understanding than they are for agreement. But I've also found that in the rooms that I'm in, people tend to withhold agreement and understanding. So that instead of breaking those two things into two pieces and recognizing that I can understand someone without agreeing with them, we withhold our understanding and don't give them the ear that we might. And I'm just curious, like, what comes up in the two of you about this sort of distinction between understanding and agreeing? Mm -hmm. I have a, a really immediate thought and a tool that I use all the time uh, on the street and on social media. Um, and that's the Clara method. And there's really two kind of definitions of Clara method. So I'm going to share the one that works for me. And if you've heard a different one, um, you can kind of listen to both, I guess. Uh, so uh, Clara is also called C-Lara, and it's a training that we use in preparation for direct action when we're doing nonviolent um, campaigns for social justice issues. If we're going to do um, civil disobedience or street demonstration, we might train in this. But I actually use it most in my life on social media, and it's an acronym that stands for Center, Listen, Affirm, Respond, and then add something new. And the trick with it, it's a couple tricks, uh, is that you do the first three steps before the, the last two. So you center yourself over and over and over again. You listen to what the other person is saying, and you affirm that. That doesn't mean agree. Yep. Like you were saying, Kit, uh, understanding someone and agreeing with them are two different things. And the reason that's the last of the first part of the Clara method is that until someone feels like they are heard and listened to, they often will not progress from their stance. They will keep repeating what they're saying until they are they feel understood. Yep. Um, so I found on comment threads, if I can say I, um, what you're saying about you know global warming being a hoax uh, is really perturbing to me because such and such, I believe that it's an existential threat. Uh, that indicates to the other person that I've heard what they're saying about global warming being a hoax. It's a very different dynamic than if I just say, you're full of baloney, climate change is real, uh, you are not ridiculous. All of those don't really facilitate us having a, an actual conversation on the subject. Mm. Once someone feels like they've been uh, affirmed or understood or listened to, 
I can often uh, respond to their points and they can hear that response. And then only then can I add something new to the conversation with any hope of it actually being heard um, and possibly not just being attacked right back. So this is uh, one formula. It It's a tool. You know, uh, Dominic gets really good at uh, breaking down formulas uh, and being authentic in the moment. And it's something I've learned from him and to remember that every tool that we pick up uh, isn't for every situation, but it certainly can be handy to have a, a diverse toolbox that you can use when you need it. So I offer that. Nice. Tom, what do you think here and all that? Well, I was just chuckling to myself even before you you said what you said about me breaking down formulas, Rivera. I was chuckling to myself thinking, that's a really good one. How can I get out of that one? <laughs> I, but I really like what you said. Um, I think that those are, those are uh, really clear principles that are remarkably applicable um, or transferable from from the interpersonal spaces that they were that 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 it was developed into to online spaces um i think anything that creates a a space of reflection that encourages me to remember that there's a difference between language and meaning is going to be supportive of me um i i i take language literally when i first receive it i take the the meaning of the words as taught to me by my culture or as you know it was written down in the dictionary as being what it is the person using those words is intending to say and of course for many different practical things that is absolutely fine it works when someone says oh i'm you know i'm just going down to the the road to get an apple um i can trust that the the meaning in the words is enough to be able to orient myself about uh, what that person is likely meaning to say. But when we get into important conversations, uh, which in my understanding means when we're speaking at the level of values, of principles, of the needs that we share, which are common to, to all living things, and the feelings that are stimulated so that we can navigate each other's uh, engagement with those principles and values, then it becomes uh, very different, and and words are approximations, words are suggestions, they're they're invitations to co-create meaning, rather than statements of meaning that has already been established. So that is both incredibly exciting because that's where that's where the life, that's where the person is, that's where the possibility for change is, that's where we're updating ourselves as human beings, and that's where we're updating, renovating, and and engaging with the creativity of relationships. That's where we're rethinking, re-engaging with social systems, reaffirming the ones that serve life, transforming the ones that don't, or creating new ones, particularly in moments of, of intense, speedy change, like the ones that we're going through at the moment. Um, so I want, in those moments, to remember that the words being used are, are invitations to listen deeper, to engage deeper, to find out what the meaning is behind what's being said. And 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 that's a that's a whole whole other universe and it requires a very different focus of attention. So anything that can help my uh, my attention suspend the initial response to believe that all the sense is just in the sounds that I'm hearing and 
to seek the human being behind what's being said, uh, anything like that will be supportive. And what I love about um, interacting in, in virtual spaces is that time is changed and you do have that space. You have the spaciousness to be able to read what you've just expressed, uh, just like Rivera said, to read it over two times, to read twice what it is that you've just received. First, okay, you're listening to the meaning that those words have in, in everyday use. But the second time, that second that second look at what's being said, that helps me relate to the human being behind the keypad and and connect to the meaning. So I like remembering the, the original um, significance of the word respect. The reason the word respect was created was to describe this process of looking a second time. Re is the prefix. That means something's going to come back or happen again. Spec is the uh, root of the word, like in spectacle or spectacles that help us see. Um, and so respect means to look again, to see a second time, to see beyond the superficial meaning, to see that beyond the things that distinguish you and I, the things that make us similar or make us very different. A second look allows us to question, is there, is there unity behind all this incredible diversity? And what I love about respect is that it doesn't suggest that looking the second time to see if we are also the same thing as well as different. It doesn't suggest that I need to minimize, diminish in any way what it is that makes us distinct. It's not a, a suggestion that there be less diversity as if that is distracting us from our commonality, but rather it's an invitation for us to hold the paradox of both these things being true simultaneously at the same time without one diminishing or encompassing the other. So anything that helps me to listen and to speak respectfully in that sense, nothing to do with behaving in certain ways or doing things that other people find easy, uh, I, find, I find valuable for my life online. Yeah, if I can jump in with just a note on the end of that, uh, because I think, Dominic, when people... Oftentimes I see people feeling very challenged around respect when they're being confronted with an idea or an ideology that they feel is incredibly destructive or dangerous to them or to others in their circles. And uh, Dr. King had this wonderful principle of nonviolence, which was to be against the injustice and not the person. And I find that to be incredibly helpful in online spaces because oftentimes uh, I mean, we see every, we can we can if we are open to it see the best of humanity and some of the very worst of humanity. Kit mentioned um, that our nonviolence now campaign elicited the response of a Klansman KKK picture, um, and yeah, that's white supremacy is straight up terrorism. Uh, but Dr. King's principle allows us to really get in there, to really get in there with that respect for the human, human behind there, not their behavior, not the belief that we're afraid of or feel threatened by or um, think is destructive to our society or our friends or our family, but to be able to see both of those at the same time. Because if you can respect the basic humanity of the other person, you often are taking your first stride to actually having an interaction that might 
shift the belief or ideology that you feel is so destructive. And I see this over and over again in my circles is that I've had people that I've done nothing, almost nothing but argue with over political issues in my comment threads and social media spaces. But when they post that they're feeling depressed or their son is sick or they can't afford their health care, um, the ability to care about their basic humanity and to say so in that comment thread has been incredible, incredibly transformative. It has shifted our relationship from antagonistic to a very baseline of trust that lets both of us be a little bit more honest and vulnerable and both of us able to articulate better why, why it is we're saying what we're saying. And that has become the basis of being able to really get in there and talk about these incredibly destructive ideologies that either one of us might have. I mean, like most of us on this call, I'm imagining that we feel our beliefs are the best. If we could run the world, everything would be great, right? But the reality is out there in, in our fellow human beings are people who feel completely the exact opposite, that if we got in charge of the universe, everything would go to, well, heck in the handbasket. And I feel like it's really important to remember that. Uh, and to remember that the this baseline of respect that you're talking about, Dominic, is actually the baseline of discourse, democracy, respectful humanity, the ability to work through our problems and differences, uh, and the it's what gives us the trust to do the work to transform um, our strongly held beliefs into an ability to communicate with one another that helps us care about each other enough to work on those policy and politics and structures and systems that are creating justice or injustice throughout the world. Right. And it's not about, it's not about self self censorship and not saying the things that, um, that are important to say wherever, wherever injustice is, is being threatened or wherever there's something that is, that is rising up against life. Um, that's, that's what I find so, so beautiful about that distinction is it is it allows us to have those conversations that are often painful and difficult because the pain and the difficulty is what is an indication of just how important they are to our to our collective lives. Yep. I was just reading uh, uh King collection this morning, um was looking at Walk for Freedom and he said in there that the real uh, reflecting on the on what the work that would happen in Montgomery was that we see the real tension is not between the Negro citizens and the white citizens of Montgomery, but a conflict between justice and injustice, between light and dark. And if there is a victory, the victory will not be merely for Negro citizens and defeat of white citizens, but a victory for justice, a defeat of injustice. So just like that kind of being able to keep that deeper awareness even in these small interactions, because all the whole everything is built from the small. Um, and the word trust was something that was has also been in my mind as I've listened to you for the last little while too, because I'm I'm aware again in face to face work with people that keeping an eye on the trust means that um, when there's trust with another person, we can almost say anything to each other and we're fine when there is not very much trust, um, almost every word sometimes can be seem to be covered in razor blades. 
So I heard like one you say one thing, Rivera, around sharing your human experience and truth online or hearing it shared from other people has been something that's broken a pattern and allowed a different kind of experience of of care and trust possibly to enter. But I'm curious if there's other thoughts that either of you would have around sort of trust online. And then I want to ask Molly if we can begin to invite some of um, the other folks on the call in to add their voices. Absolutely. Um, just want to remind everybody that submitting a question or a comment on the webcast is simple. Just click on the Q&A tab and we'll get that on the back end here. You can also present um, your comment or question with the mindfulness of um, the shared agreement I believe Kit shared earlier um, for this time by pressing start two on the keypad. And I just want to thank and acknowledge that we have a global community here today from Brazil, the United States, New Zealand, Italy, France, and many other places. So thank you so much all for being here with us today. Kit? Thank you. So I want to check in again around this notion of trust online and then invite in our first question. Any thoughts either one of you guys have want to share about trust and online communication? Or have we already said everything? Well, I, I was just thinking that the, the example that Rivera gave was so um, so simple and so clear for me that, that that you might find a moment where you're connecting with the, the the humanness of someone who you're disagreeing with online, perhaps because they're unwell or because something happened to their kid. And my experience is that moments like that see this very profound trust. And, yes. and that makes, as Rivera said, that makes the whole of the rest of the conversation different. And one of the things that we've been experimenting with in Brazil over the last six months knowing that the election was coming and being able to predict some of the dynamics that were going to be going down is that um, we've been participating in a project where we bring together um, people with hundreds of thousands or many millions of followers on in social media spaces to spend a few hours together in the same room. And there's a, there's a sequence to the day which basically takes them through the kind of information that is interesting to everybody to beginning to discover that they may well have been involved in dynamics that um, stimulated the expression of hate towards each other online. Um, and it seeded some really extraordinary conversations and partnerships between people who had before and continue to have very, very intensely held and radically distinct political opinions but have discovered that the other person is, is you know, a really decent person and, and, and fun to hang out with. Um, and so the, there, are, there are definitely things that I think we can do to help reveal the underlying humanity of the other person that are completely compatible with making the most of these spaces for, for, for debate and for having the expression of very, very different opinions. So I, I just love the simplicity of that example. You know, someone's feeling a bit down, and and you reach out to them. You reach out to them, and that allows them to see a whole other aspect to the opinion that they disagree with. 
You know, Dominic, I'm really glad that you are bringing up things from Brazil because there's so many parallels between Brazil and my own country of the United States. And I think around the world as well, there's a lot of patterns that are replicating around fear and fear of scarcity and um, kind of clinging to one's own people and othering other people um, and then intensifying polarization and righteousness Um all these patterns are happening for many of us, kind of regardless of our nationality. And so one of the things that I think a lot about is how these little interactions that we have with individuals online or in person um, are really the foundation for how we're interacting with each other nationally. And we know that, or internationally even, and we know that there are these big megaphones of uh, news channels and media and pundits and politicians who are pretty much make their living out of dividing people. It varies from uh, nation to nation, but in the U.S. this is very common. Um, and we as human beings, uh, we can have a very vested interest in things like peace and understanding and the ability to have a dialogue, um, the ability to trust one another. You know, in an era of climate change, when a forest fire rips through your town, it doesn't really matter what your political views are on, are on that situation. Uh, in the next moment, you're all going to need to get away from the fire. You're going to need to get food and shelter. You're going to want people to come together to help one another. And I feel like it. we can often pretend that the things that we're doing on social media don't have a direct effect on these, but they really do. And in terms of things like political <laughs> cycles, I think every presidential election, we all like threaten to quit Facebook or, or Twitter, um, you know, six or seven times before the election, and then we all give a big sigh of relief. But really, what would it be like if that wasn't the case? If every person on this call then went and talked to 10 more people about the things that we've learned on this call and shared this um, this recording with other people so that the next political cycle, we're, we're connecting to each other's humanities, we're opening dialogues instead of debates, we're uh, avoiding some of those pitfalls that you described, Dominic, um, that you brought up in Brazil, of how we ourselves, uh, no matter our political orientation, are replicating online the name-calling, the screaming at each other, the fear-based, the, the meme machines, I love that. Um, the uh, labeling and othering, the scorning and the scoffing, um, the shoving people into lesser than positions depending on their beliefs, their um, their races, their classes, their genders, their educational background. What if we took on the responsibility to radically transform those behaviors in ourselves and invite others to do that as well? I think when we're talking about people making decisions together, trust and respect are the basis of that happening. And if we want to fight fascism, quote unquote, um, if we want to stop the rise of tyranny in the world, if we want to unravel injustices, and if we want to survive some of our many crises, we need to start, well, there's many places to start, but one of the places is these behaviors right here. And so... I really believe in this. I really try to practice it. I'm, I trip and stumble and have pitfalls all the time. Uh, but the important thing is that you recognize them and learn from them and try again.
Um, just feeling so thoughtful uh, and nourished by this call already. Thank you both. Molly, have we got somebody who wants to jump in with us? We've got a couple of web questions. Um, cool. And also just again, press, press star two on your telephone or I suppose however you access this webcast, you should be able to still submit a live question um, or ask one that is or make a comment. So thank you for your participation. Um, well, let's start with Carol. And she um, asks, would it be helpful to encourage people, beginning with us, to avoid Twitter? Thank you, Carol. Tom, you're, a, you're on Twitter. What do you think about that? Um. I love the brevity of Twitter, and um, I'm cautious about um, how much thoughtfulness um, needs to go into brevity for it to effectively communicate, rather than um, simply reinforce the, the, the distinctions and will actually seed understanding. Um, but I find that, um, that the, the public... Um, the kind of sense of being in a circle of having other people around is is the is the quality that Twitter brings that can be very um, reinforcing of dynamics of intolerance and in another moment can be very supportive to actually digging through them. So uh, once again, I want to take care of time. Twitter, because the messages are so short. Um, encourages me to speak quickly and just press send, whereas in perhaps other forms which tolerate uh, lengthier posts, then I'm encouraged to be reflective and other people are a little bit more patient with the time it's taking me to respond while I really think about what it is that I want to say or rather uh, think about how it is that I want to say it to, to increase the chance that I'll be heard, whereas Twitter moves very quickly. So um, I think that that Again, the, the acronym that Rivera brought up uh, has something useful to offer to those kind of conversations, encouraging me to move at another speed. And one of the things that I might need to do as I navigate those kind of conversations at a different speed from other people is to recognize that, okay, well, some conversations might run ahead of me. Um, if, if I'm in a large group of people, if there's lots of people participating, then it might mean that I'm I'm not keeping up with the flow of most of the messages for a while, and I think that's that's part of uh, of a, a negotiation between technology and and natural cycles. Technology now has the ability to move uh, incredibly fast, and the natural cycles that we're used to uh, can. There's a lot of intelligence in in their pace, and their pace has. Uh, is often slower than than what we can do online or what I can produce with with thoughts that I'm not actually thinking, but that I've just absorbed from the culture and I'm just spewing out and repeating. So, once again, I want to I want to consciously claim the the time and the space in any any movement for nonviolence within me in relationship or socially is marked by occupying space and transforming time in particular ways 
and I want to make sure that that's part of, of, of what I do online, even though um, the, the, the speed of some of these some of these technologies is is fun in and of itself, but it can it can get scary and dangerous very fast too. Hmm. I'm thinking about uh, one of my favorite uh, folks out in the Bay Area, Victor Lewis. I heard say a few years ago, and I've thought about it so many times. He says. Um, Simple answers to complex problems tend to make problems worse, and I wonder that about Twitter as well, too, because it's as you said, the space especially precludes sometimes acknowledging um, complexity. But I'm also thinking that it could, there would be the space to do the thing that you you advocated for a little while ago, Rivera, which just sort of share our human experience of the moment. Um, what what are you, what's your what are your thoughts on around Twitter? Well, as someone with twenty five thousand Twitter followers, um, I love Twitter, uh, but I also use each platform with awareness of the strengths and shadows of that platform. And I think that's really important, and not to do that research once and for all, because the platforms are always changing, the users are always changing, the algorithms are always changing, and most importantly, you're always changing. So, you know, you may go through a phase where you've got your sound bites down and you want to speak them on Twitter and you want to speak in uh, the, the haiku of a tweet. And other times you may need to be able to articulate in greater strength, um, and in which case you may choose not to tweet about a subject, but rather to go on Facebook and post about it, or go onto a um, a blog with an open comment section and engage there. And sometimes the things that you want to say don't belong, or I shouldn't say they don't belong, the things that you want to say are best said and expressed with a group of people in real time, and those all have different formats as well. So, you know, I I tend to think about using platforms and formats skillfully and wisely. I do my personal processing work offline. Um, You know, if I'm really struggling with an issue, and a really good example for me a while back was reparations, really pushed all of my buttons, and yet that wasn't a conversation that I wanted to have as a debate online. That was a conversation that I needed to have with close friends and talk through and examine why I had resistance and what what people were saying to do more research on. Um, And so I really encourage us to um, find the right place to have the do the work internally and with others that needs to be done and to really understand what each platform is. Um, the last thing I just want to say about avoiding any particular platform is it's, it's your choice to be there or not to be there. And there's no judgment in that choice. Uh, really, I really want to emphasize that. Um, I tend to be someone who is actually getting increasingly cozy with conflict and I really don't mind jumping in. (laughs) Uh, but if you're someone who can be very emotionally and psychologically triggered by certain conversations or people's aggressive ways of having conversations, you're going to need to moderate your capacity to be present with the comment threads or the Twitterverse uh, and to really take care of yourself in those spaces, to, to protect what needs to be protected because 
gaping wounds, you don't need another knife shoved in them, right? Uh, you need to heal those to some degree. And then you also need to push your boundaries. And platforms are great for that. Online platforms are great for that. Hmm. So we're, we're, we're just acknowledging some of the paradox, you know, that that's true, just as true in our online relationships as they are in any other one in a way. We've got some more questions coming in. Molly, we've got another one to toss our way. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, thanks to Catherine. This is a great question. And also thank you to Carol for the one about Twitter. Um, Catherine asks or starts out with a, a response here about today. Uh, she says, it seems like the speakers are assuming that we sometimes are aggressive online. That's not my case. I came to this event because I usually avoid responding to aggressive and confrontational comments. I am not sure how to get started going against this apprehension. As a climate scientist, if I respond, my temptation is to respond with data or information instead of respect and trust. I have a hard time having respect for a climate change denier. Any suggestions? Hmm. Thank you, Catherine. What do you two think? Yeah, I have a short response and then hand it over to Dominic. Um, I used to be really not a fan of conflict, uh, very conflict averse. I know I just said the opposite, but <laughs> but the thing is I, that I wasn't always excited about conflict, but getting skills for navigating conflict really helped me be more willing to step up and engage. Uh, the second part is about the climate deniers and, and science and data. I love that comment about how data and facts are, are a little bit different than trust and respect. And both have a, a role and a place for sure. Um, I would encourage Catherine to really reflect about how a climate denier has a human being underneath there. And there's probably reasons uh, why they are afraid or concerned about dealing with the climate science. And if you can look at those, you might find that conversation opening up in a really unusual direction. That's one approach, and, and there's so many. Yeah. Um, I just, first of all, want to thank Catherine for doing what she's doing and and just make visible because sometimes we think this is, oh, this is something that we read about in history books. This isn't something that happens in our time. But um, there are people who are uh, just following their passion for understanding the universe, understanding the world, and that in and of itself generates um, resistance and and movements to, to silence, uh, simply discovering, observing what it is that's happening and particularly what's happening with the way that the, the, the Earth is changing. Um, given that that's the case, it, it, it may be supportive sometimes just to nurture ourselves with stories of how uh, this is something that has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, that there is um, a huge impact uh, resulting from us observing clearly what it is that uh, we do what it is that's happening around us how 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 our world works how the universe works how we function in it how natural forces function and every time a picture of the world is changed and climate science invites us to to 
deepen into a radically different picture of of how the world functions. Um, our whole sense of who we are and the way that we psychologically and mentally organize our lives uh, shift. So for many people, this is profoundly disturbing. Perhaps for everybody it is. Um, but some people have many more resources to be able to deal with that than others do. So it can be very frightening for someone to come across a mere fact. Um, and I imagine that that can be pretty disorienting as well for the person who's who's sharing that fact because um, there's no obvious clue that the conversation has shifted for being one about the science to one about, well, what happens to my life if I accept the scientific information you're sharing with me? Um, so conflict is one way to notice that such a shift has happened it's one of the one of the ways that we can uh, we can get feedback within our relationships about the fact that something has shifted and our attention and our and our approach to to ourselves and to the other person needs to shift into a different mode um and one of the qualities of that mode is that if there were uh, agreed differences between us that perhaps involved also different relationships of power. When conflict begins, those agreed differences, um, they fade into the background. They're much less important than the pain and the meaning and the values that are at play in whatever uh, whatever the conflict is. So Catherine, if this is, if, this, if this is both something you observe and also a choice of yours not to engage with, um, then maybe uh, simply mentioning that you're noticing that the conversation is shifting from one about the data to one about the consequences that, that has for our lives um, and and that you notice that happening and you wish everybody well and, and, and you choose not to continue with that part of the conversation. You hope that other people whose focus isn't on the science but is, whose focus is on more the relational aspects and, and the consequences and the, the political systemic consequences of what it is that folks like you do that they will continue to engage with that conversation going forward. I, I really don't think that all of us have to do everything. Um, but I, I do think that all of us can can get um, savvy about the way in which conflict emerges online or, or the signals that it is beginning to emerge. And we can begin simply saying that that is what we observe happening um, so that all of us notice, all oh, right, so we've we've... We've shifted on a, a level. We're in, we're in a different space now. So perhaps we need a different quality of attention, um, maybe a different use of language. Hmm. I'm imagining, too, I know, like for myself, as someone who's been trying to relate to information about climate change for many years, that um, I still have such a struggle with it, too. And so someone for whom this information is new, the level of threat or fear that would arise in them would be significant. So just to somehow, like, have some mercy for that, um, it's that's a difficult one. Catherine, I, I thank you so much for your question. Molly, who else have we got who wants to chat with us today? This seems like a really poignant one, and I want to thank the anonymous person who submitted it. Um, they ask, how can we create a support network in this NVC and restorative justice community 
For those who are threatened by others in social media, whom outlets like Facebook do not remove. Well, I'd say that um, both for restorative communities, for nonviolent communication communities, and, and for so many other communities of people engaged uh, with these issues, the first thing is to notice um, that conflict is a phenomena that our companies are interrelating, that it's um, an entirely healthy aspect of our relationships, and that it requires dedicated spaces to take care of it. Um, just like our other collective needs require dedicated spaces. So um, I think the first thing is to ask the question. So I'm just really happy that the question was brought up. Um, I think it's so important that we're willing to say that this is part of our lives together. And to add, if that's true, and it is for, for me and for many of us, um, that it's not just part of our lives together, but it's a part that can be deeply disorienting um, that can be hugely challenging for us, that can remind us of innumerable different painful experiences from the past when perhaps we didn't have the same resources that we have now. So um, our memory of what happened when conflict arose is only a separation, distancing, a pain, physical danger, threat, harm, um, silence, and, and so many other things that, that, that damaged our, our, our relational self. So the the capturing, I'd say, because I haven't found any online platform which is really designed to make these spaces um, that that is that encourages them to be to be created and and help, helps them function fully. But capturing these spaces and beginning to um, use our collective creativity to work out ways in which they can um, become supportive of our willingness to to look into the things that distinguish us, to look into the places where we disagree is um is part of the emerging art of of surviving online and beginning to 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 thrive online so i think this is a moment of a lot of experimentation um i've i've seen some people beginning to collect even just a few months experience and and start to share it with other people which i think is wonderful but i i haven't met and i i certainly don't experience it myself that we have done more than begin to learn how to do this um so I think what I'd say is um, experiment as much as possible. Um, make 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 your life and your relationships a laboratory of this. Um, find out as best you can what it is that works by trying everything and by being really rigorous about the criteria. Um, finding out what what is inclusive, what makes you feel good, what makes you what, what strengthens you. Um, safety is a is a is a huge value, but I want. I want the safety of these spaces to be one that strengthens me to re-engage rather than that encourages me to, to stay hidden in a, um, in a place of disengagement. Um, and as soon as, as, as best practice starts to emerge, start sharing that stuff as widely as possible because I think there's a huge hunger for this kind of uh, innovation. Thank you. Rivera, any thoughts? There was a, a a latter part of that question that I'm not sure I totally understood, but it sounded like um, something about how there some people experience the dangers and the threats that and the social media doesn't remove those. 
And so I have a thought on that, and I'm not sure it's directly relatable to the question. Um, so to our anonymous listener, forgive me if I'm off the mark on this, but uh, one thing that comes to mind is that we often think about our individual capacity online um, only, and that's a product of our training culturally. But there's a great beauty and strength and danger <laughs> of um, thinking about our shared potential together. And in comment threads is a great example of when you see an exchange happening in which someone is being bullied or someone's being having character attacks happening or there are threats going on or the conversation has just gone in a direction that is quite risky for the participants. Remember that you can join that conversation and you can say what you're seeing, what you're observing and the dynamics that are going on. You can um, stand up for someone who's being attacked. Um, you know, when we do these group activities, we often we also have to weigh our collective strength and make sure we're not turning into a lynch mob. But on the other hand, if we're just watching passively and silently, that makes us a bystander while someone is getting uh, verbally beaten up in a comment thread, right? So in nonviolence, we try to find a response somewhere in between punching back and doing nothing. And we try to train in the many skills that we can use many of which we've talked about on the call, for doing exactly that. And our ability to take action in that way sometimes is an intervention in the threats that people face in real life and online. I'm thinking specifically about uh, racial justice issues come up a lot in, in U.S. circles, that when people of color are always handling the conversation, they are at risk of the blowback on that conversation. When we who are white step up to also be a part of that conversation, we help to share the burden and to um, really draw a line uh, with our fellow white people about what we feel is acceptable and not acceptable and to do the, the legwork on that issue. So that's a specific example of how we can collectively engage um, in when a comment is unfolding and help to lower the, the risk and the threats that uh, certain individuals, sometimes we are that individual, but certain individuals can be facing. I know for myself a couple of times when I've done something that felt riskier online that um, and what my fear often was is that I was going to just get beat up online and I wasn't, I didn't know what I was going to do about it. So, like, really getting specific about who can be a support person for me or even kind of, like, sort of looking at, like, well, so if I did get beat up online and a bunch of people piled on, what would that mean? And just kind of exploring that as a fear so that you become less fearful, you know, it's kind of would be like a sort of a learning role play opportunity. So what what are your worst fears in relation to either, you know, sticking your neck out or whatever, look at those and play with those and, and, um, and keep learning. Yeah. Um, another just question, Mel? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, can, I, can I add just one, one little thing quickly? It's just to, just to say that one of the things I like to notice is that we collectively at the moment, we seem to be very unsure about the impact of language. Um, we kind of collectively in the moment in society we're not really sure 
one moment we're speaking about language as if it can do actual harm to other people, and we have lots of examples of that to bring to the table. And another moment we're saying it's, it's absolutely key that people can express themselves in whatever way is authentic, otherwise it's censorship. And we're, we're, we're living this duality around language. So I think that one of the, one of the challenges that we have in creating these, um, these places online is to, is to work out how to make the agreements between ourselves that allow us to even begin the process of expression and listening. And one of those mm. is, is a collective understanding. Okay, in this particular space, we're going to play the game that language actually creates specific damage or benefit for other people. So we're going to, our mindfulness is going to go to that. And another moment, we're going to say, we're going to play the game that expression is sovereign and, and can never be restricted and that it's the, the job of the listener to listen for the meaning underneath. Both of them are completely legitimate games, but when we don't make it clear which one we're playing, um, then, then a lot of harm can happen. Thank you. It also appears, if I may add, um, that we're playing a lot of dualistic games with truth. <clears throat> so um, I, I, we did receive uh, a comment again on this particular thread and question that was presented from a, the anonymous person. Um, they say, in addition, Facebook does not remove or even warn the people, um, so it's more of a concern about how, you know, how do we interrelate with platforms that aren't um, really grokking uh, the circumstances that they're helping create. I hope we, I'm stating we, that correctly. I think, I think, quite simply, we need our own platforms. Um, so bumping into the limitations of the ones that we're using at the moment is um, immensely frustrating sometimes but also very educational about what happens when uh, we populate platforms over which we have no influence. So um, I think just like many other historical moments, we'll, we'll, we'll be working out how to create our own platforms over time so that, so that we can transition from the stage we're in now in which the dynamics that are being described can occur to ones in, in which which we have an agreement that that's not how we want to meet and relate with each other. Great. Thank you. Molly, any other voices we can bring in today? Mm -hmm. uh, thank you, Sarah, for your question. And she asks, and this kind of points to quite a bit of the thread today um, in, on varying levels. Um, is there a time where trying to resolve or understand online becomes less than ideal. How can we discuss highly sensitive subjects, disagree, and then we get stuck or dead-ended? What then? Mm. That is a fantastic question, Sarah. <laughs> um, I think we've all probably been there in that experience maybe more than once. Um, one thing I like to keep in mind is that, and I know Dominic's probably going to, I don't know, I suspect Dominic's going to take a different perspective on this, so I'm going to share an activist perspective um, and, and hope he goes the direction my imagination is running. Um, good luck. But 
what comes to mind for me as an activist is that we use something called spectrum of allies and we map out where everyone is on that spectrum in relationship to our issue. And for each group of people, whether they're complete opposition or they're kind of neutral on the subject or they're neutral on the subject but personally really don't like us or they are for the subject but kind of passive about the issue, each one of those groups and categories of people uh, and even individuals on that spectrum has a different step that they're going to take towards us. Uh, uh, your super opposition might just need to, to shift to a place where they're not actively fighting you all the time. And uh, for that, you, you may be looking to build a little bit of understanding with them that their view is not the only view on the subject or you might have a someone who is kind of uh, more passive in their opposition, but you want to build a little trust with them. Or you want to open up somebody's mind up just a little bit. You have to remember that our interaction with an individual is on a continuum of experiences that they're having with people and that there's no winning of a relationship or a conversation. There's a shifting that inevitably happens for better, for worse, for uh, results that fall outside of the paradigm of better and worse. And so I often think about my online interactions of what openings can I encourage in someone's mind? What trust can I build with them so that they're more willing to consider the ideas of people who may look or seem like me? Um, what um, shift can I, can I uh, see if we can, we can work towards? in our views. Um, so I'm not always trying to turn a troll into a, you know, a cheerleader for my movement, and that's using some labels, but I am often looking to see what this, this particular encounter can do to shift someone from a place that I feel is destructive to the next step towards um, getting into alignment with something I feel is more constructive. Thanks, Rivera. Dom, what have you got on this one? Oh, I was excited because I was thinking that me and Rivera were going to have a disagreement and then we could practice live in front of everybody. But so You um, would have to hang up and start typing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, I loved your response. Um, and... <laughs> um, I think that that one of the one of the tricky aspects of um of a culture which is averse to to conflict and seeing myself as being in recovery from from that culture and and so so you know very very prone to fall back into that to the dynamics that accompany that aversion um is that is that we we lose we can easily lose sight of the fact that um that we're we're not we're not settled into this little space of my truth and your truth we are actually engaging in ways that seek to um bring clarity to each other so that we can understand things more effectively that's that's the idea of of having of having a a, a democratic discourse in societies that we're, we're going to put across lots of different ideas and, and then we're going to we're going to wrestle with them so that we can find out which one is going to serve life best um, 
So we are often going to be walking into uh, situations where there's where there's disagreement, and we're going to be standing on the front lines of that disagreement, both both physically in our interpersonal interactions and and online. So making that uh, making that clear and standing up for things is incredibly important. Uh, understanding isn't a substitute for um, for for speaking in in ways that that invite real shifts in other people's understanding. Um, even though we know that they may pass through periods in which everything is very disorienting and we're and we're lost and and needing a great deal of support, perhaps. Um, what I like to remember is that 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 support is distinct from that conversation. And that allows me to more fully engage uh, in in the differences, and sometimes quite you know quite a lot of muscular energy, because the things that are being spoke, spoken about are really really important. Can I just want to add something about that muscular energy, Dominic? Because I feel like it's really important. Everything that we've been talking about on this call doesn't mean you have to be lukewarm or tepid about it. One of the most ferocious comments I ever made online to someone is was over health care. And the ferocious thing I said to this person was, I disagree with you on every single comment thread we interact on, and yet I would still fight tooth and nail nonviolently, of course, for you and your children's right to have free universal healthcare to take care of your health because you know what even though I disagree with you I actually love you enough to fight for that that was a pretty ferocious comment that I made I mean there were exclamation points there was even a couple words in all caps and it was very powerful it transformed my relationship with this individual um, and so I, I feel like the, that this is a moment to remember that passion has a place um, and that we are participants, not um, neutral moderators of discussions at all times. So, uh, you know, this is an invitation to be human as well. It's surprising how our humanness uh, transforms conflict. Very surprising. And to engage our other emotions beyond just aggression or anger or outrage um, sometimes being morally appalled at someone is extremely effective. Okay. Like, I can't believe you just said that. I really am shocked that you would use that kind of language in one of my comment threads. That opened up amazing conversations for me more than once. Hmm. Cool. I've been taking notes listening to the two of you, and I want to kind of reflect just a couple things that I heard that I think are themes. And I want to thank Catherine, Sarah, and others for, for helping us engage in a more thoughtful way. I heard you both advocate for a single set of ethics in relations, in all relations. So who I am, all the, in other spaces, I want to be that same thoughtful, moral person online. These are my words, of course, not yours that we can um, choose to be vulnerable and share our own ex human experiences and truth at times, um, both when it's true and possibly as a way to interrupt dialogue to help bring it to center it in more grounded ways, that we can slow down and work with time intentionally, that we can acknowledge the strengths and shadows that of every form, 
every format, every platform, that we can seek support and safety in order to re-engage, not simply to stay in their, the safe spaces. And that we don't check our passion, that we actually bring our full passionate self in. This is not about becoming, like as you said, Rivera, lukewarm. So those are some of the things that I heard kind of like emerging as themes from the conversation so far. Any other themes that the two of you want to name or just additional thoughts you want to name at this point? Dominic, do you want to go? Um, I was just kind of letting the question sink in. If you have something, go for it. Sure. Um, I find, and we've said this on the call, but something to really bring up is that the more you work with these um, many approaches and strands of strategies for engaging with conflict, the more permission that gives you to speak truth on social media or your truth on social media and see what unfolds and transpires. It may be that you are the one who ends up shifting for better, for worse. Um, we're not always completely in the right. I like to think I am all the time, honestly, but uh, in reality, I learn things all the time. Uh, I flipped out on someone on a comment thread about something that I misinterpreted given the picture in the 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 article. Mm -hmm. So I had to apologize and say I was wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where conflict gets really lively is when you see yourself shifting as well. I would also just encourage people to open this conversation up in, on your social media platforms. And Dominic invited this as well. What Ask your friends, what are your best practices for dealing with conflict in the comments? I did this um, before this call in preparation for what I would bring up and share on the call, and I found many ideas that I'd never heard of uh, and many ideas that I'd forgotten along the way mm. and came out of it with a list of practices from my friends as well. So cool. I, I encourage that. Mm, thank you. Dom, you've got one minute. Well, I I love that, and I think I just add that even though like some of us have been on these online conversations for a couple of decades now, it's still very, very new territory. It's still very young. Um, and not only the technology continues to change, but our understanding of how we can express ourselves within it is, is, is at a moment of huge creativity and, and uncertainty and, and emerging new possibilities. So, I think for all of us, just a reminder that none of us quite know uh, where we are just yet. We're finding ourselves, finding each other in these spaces, finding out what these spaces do to our relationships. Um, and sometimes I just I find that useful to remember that this is it's entirely appropriate to be making loads and loads of mistakes. Thank you. So I'm going to put out a couple of calls to action for everybody sitting. Wherever you are on the planet right now, I'm going to put out some some calls and, and challenge. I want to invite you to consider being an online peacekeeper, to ground your action and purpose online when you type, when you touch the screen, um, and like to like develop the capacity 
however you need to do it, to return love and patience and passion for all the flavors of anger and hate, That to greet grief and fear um, in, in a different way online. I want to ask you to jump on the Nonviolence Now website and contribute a story. If you've been, if you found us on this call, if you're on the list that that marketed this call, you're someone who cares about the way that human beings conduct uh, um, business with each other and how we're going to hold ourselves accountable for the future. For children like Molly's son David, who this call is dedicated to, to all all the future ones. So. Please contribute your stories of how you're enacting nonviolence, and we want these stories from all over the world to continue to nourish us. It's easy to do. Please engage with us on our social media. Um, we've got the ad in non Newsweek magazine right now, and I'm hoping that that stimulates a lot of uh, conflict in the comments. And it would be, I hope you'll engage with our social media for nonviolence now to help us. Um, hold ourselves accountable in the way we talked about today, and also so we can all continue to teach each other. And the last thing is I want to, I want to ask you to help us find uh, financial resources to continue this project. Um, we can leverage every dollar um, to five or six additional media dollars through their, our wonderful collaboration with the Public Foundation in Atlanta. So um, the donation that you could make for this call, but also are, are there people in the world that you know that might have the resources that would want to help with this? This is online nonviolence that we're trying to find our way into here. Molly, what do you want to say about how people can make a donation today? Thank you, Kit. I'd love to just add very specifically that if you are so inspired and able right now, you can go to the webcast page if you're not already there and um, you'll see the slide there of the beautiful uh, publicly, public foundation um, funded ad for nonviolence now, very iconic and beautiful. It says, violence is an epidemic. What if there was a cure? As a critical response to violence and injustice, a worldwide campaign in introducing the reality of nonviolence to billions of people, real stories, real change. Discover more, of course, at nonviolencenow.org. But donating with that button today is really easy if you just go to the webcast page, also during the replay, which is evergreen and will be available to all of you. So I just want to thank you, Kit, um, and on behalf of the MK, MK Gandhi Institute and Restorative Justice on, on the Rise, it's been a pleasure to be your host today. And thank you to Dominic, and thank you to Rivera. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, everyone.